Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio. Your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's hosts Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. Welcome to Season 18, Episode 19, powered by Instat Hockey, often the largest video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, and Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and study to the next level at JuniorProspectHockeyLeague.com. Once again, we have Pat Malloy in the studio for the player development segment. Our topic this week is actually Mackenzie Weger, one of his clients, and building an NHL player. And Pat, thanks for coming on the show again. We always appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So Mackenzie Weger is an interesting case study. Obviously, he starts off in junior A and then jumps over into the queue and plays for Halifax. One of the fascinating things is, and I don't know why it's a trend with a lot of your clients, is <laughs> the, the, the knock on him is can't skate. Now, I can't stand that term. I think it's ridiculous. Like if you're playing at that level, you can skate, but it's what, how effective you are as a skater. And can you build, build a player into something that is more efficient in that respect? He was a player that he was very good in junior A and was a rock star in the queue for the two years he was in. And then he made the jump directly into pro talk about that process when you first met McKenzie and then helping him develop into once he hit the pro ranks, because that's when the talent pool compresses and it's sink or swim at that point. Yeah. I, I mean, I met, I met Weeks, uh, you know, back in minor hockey and, you know, the thing that really jumped out, obviously processor was, was the big thing for him could really think the game, but for sure. I mean, you know, the, the first sort of thing that we started to attack was just mobility. That was, that was his thing. You know, I, I, I heard him talk about it, just sort of first step quickness and just those initial steps. And those were some of the, his first concerns. Yeah. You know, late blooming kid, you know, got to junior a, you know, played a year junior B that's not really talked about played junior B at 16, then to junior a, you know, then to the queue and, and here we are. And, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think a big part of it is is recognizing your strengths and, and leveraging those strengths against areas of development. So he's another guy that if we listened to everyone that said he couldn't skate, you know, he's a $50 million defenseman right now. So, you know, we didn't let the things he could do get in the way of what he couldn't. And and I think the big thing is, is we can always chip away and develop skating. And I think we see that, you know, he's he's become really good at picking up little seconds of time. I know there's some of my coin terms just in terms of time saved and timed earned. He's really good at figuring out body position um, and not creating races that he doesn't need to for himself. And, you know, when you add a processor like that and recognize, you know, how to skate the game, um, you know, obviously it's, it's turned out pretty well for him. So. And I'm surprised he even told me that the skating wasn't, uh, wasn't up to par to be honest. Cause I never saw him as a prospect. So I've seen more of the finished package. And the last thing I would think was that uh, he had skating concerns based off where he is now. So that's a testament to uh, to your development with him and his development. Uh, one thing that I really appreciate about Uyghur is that second he has the puck on his stick, he talks about he, – he does exactly what you talk about all the time, which is initiate with, with deception. He's an incredibly deceptive thinker. Uh, was that always built into him, or did you develop that over time with him? I mean, his processing allows him to really adopt deceptive con uh, concepts really quickly. Um, but it is something that we certainly, you know, will try to drill every chance we get the opportunity in terms of, you know, now it's sort of morphed into, 
you know, game situational things where, so, you know, going back and getting a puck and making a net positive first play, you know, possession exit, for instance, um, you know, the time that he saves to do that. And so recognizing ways to be deceptive, to open up just that one extra second, that half a second, when you're a player with, with, you know, high end processing, it doesn't take three seconds. It might just take a half second to allow you to make a net positive first play. And, and so that's a lot of what we'll deal with is, is not, you know, how do I skate 200 feet all over the place, you know, 10 and twoing edging going all over the place. And, and that's not it that, you know, and I think what people appreciate about his game is when he's on it, really, he makes the game look easy. Um, he makes the game look really simple and that's a sign that our skating is on point because we're not put into situations where we're um, costing ourselves time or creating situations where we've got to play catch up in the game. And he's become a master at that um, in, in terms of, you know, kind of being that much ahead of it, if that makes sense. He's one of the only players out there that where the analytics crowd and the old school crowd completely agree on him as a player. They look at it from different perspectives but it really, I think everybody appreciates his efficiency. And the fact, what I like about him is he looks at the options available and takes the most consistent high probability option every time because yeah. it's about moving the puck up the ice in a way yeah. where once that puck goes to that player, that player has options too. Not just saying, oh, I'm going to make this high risk pass to this player and then whatever happens after that, that's on him. That's not how he plays the game and processes the game, right. which is, I think, why it makes him a highly effective defenseman. Did you see that even when he was in junior B and junior A in that he he understood which option was the best to push the puck up the ice? Obviously, you know, his his, his processing's matured, but you could definitely see that he, you know, he had a very logical approach to not making the game more difficult than it needed to be you know, letting the puck do some of the work. And um, I, I think that's what you appreciate, you know, from an analytics perspective, he, he doesn't make um, decisions where the fallout is negative, if that makes sense. Um, there's a cleanliness to the way he moves the puck to logical options that are a higher percentage choice. And then the old school crowd will love him because I think what you've started to see is, is he's got a grit and, and a determination and a competitiveness to his play that, you know, you'll see him read space, step up on someone and close space. And it turns into physical contact simply because he made an intelligent read and got to a spot that took away all of someone's time and space. And there's that fallout contact from it. So you've got the old school crowd that love that um, and that he's willing to be physical and, you know, I kind of draw it back that, yeah, he's, he's competitive and willing to be physical, but his processor recognized, I'm going to shut this play down up the ice before it, you know, builds momentum and causes me grief in my own end of the ice. So, um, you know, the, the one thing with him is, is, you know, we recognize early there's areas that we need to, to clean up coming out of pivots or going back on pucks or things like that, um, creating just enough room on an offensive blue line perspective to make a play where we don't all have to skate, um, you know, 100 miles an hour around the rink all over the place. And, and you know, everybody's different and that goes to you know what we've talked about before is is can we do the best with his physical makeup with with his natural abilities um he doesn't have to look like anyone else to be super effective yeah I mean, when you look I, at his process and speed do you feel that 
one thing that it, it grants him that's not very common is the fact that he can actually be a multi-tier defenseman in the sense that he's an insulator, he's a puck mover, he's an offensive defenseman, he's a shutdown, he's any defenseman. That's pretty rare. Like I find he's one of those very rare unicorns in the game where he can legitimately be anything you need him to be. And it was funny you say that because, you know, I think back to his, his, um, his path, you know, there was a time coming into pro where, you you know, he was yet to be established. I don't think people really understood what he was. I, I can remember his name floating around in terms of availability, you know, from one club to the next and, uh, you know, you, you hear from the pro scouting crowd and, and that kind of stuff that his name was out there. And I always thought to myself, what an, what an interesting comment, because you could see he was a little bit ahead of his time in terms of what defensemen have morphed into and, and how they're valued. Um, and now, of course, I mean, you know, so proud of him that he was able to sort of secure his future and lock up that big ticket. Um, and he's earned it. He's come the hard way. It wasn't like he was this highly touted guy, first round pick, like, he's really convinced people what it is he is based on doing it. And, you know, the proof's been in the pudding for him and that, you know, he he's come a long way from a guy that might've been available to, you know, here's a guy locked up on an eight year deal and um, you know, full credit to him because at, at times it was, he didn't fit the conventional mold of, of what hockey was going back, you know, five, six, seven years ago. And here we are today. And, you know, he's proved that you know he can play any way you want to play you want to play a rugged cycle based game he's there you want to push tempo and and move pucks up the ice and play a transitional game he's there and um, I think you know I'm so proud of him because he's that sort of hybrid model that you know whatever way you want to play the game we can be successful and we can do that and you know that's that's marks and credit to him for for working at his game and and you know obviously blessed with with the processing that he has but um, you just appreciate all the little nuances of his game. And, and we don't spend a lot of time focused on the things he can't do because um, I think what he's proving he can do is, is a lot. Yeah, and that's what makes it, I think, him really interesting is we talk about this from a forward perspective. We like the guys who are versatile. We like the guys who are the Swiss Army Knives. If you're not going to be a superstar, that's really what we're interested in because that has full value across your roster. And then we don't really talk about that in terms of defensemen in that respect. And that's where McKenzie yep. sort of, he fits that mold as a defenseman. And that's where I think his appreciation from any side of hockey, that's where it, that comes in. That's where I think everybody loves him for that. And we're starting to recognize that that's the modern day uh, defenseman. If you can get a guy like that. Well, Pat, thank you very much for coming on the show again. We really appreciate it and look forward to speaking to you next week. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio, and we'll be back right after these messages. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. 
The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by Instack Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're happy to bring on Jason Bukula for our Scouts Perspective segment from Sportsnet. Jason, thanks for coming on the show again. We appreciate it. No problem, fellas. Nice to be with you again. Let's uh, delve into the topic of this week. It's since the tournament has just ended is the value and evaluating players at the five nations tournament in November and February for people who don't know it happens twice a year, once in the fall, then once in sort of like midwinter for us in North America. Um, although this year it is only four nations because the Russians weren't allowed to participate, but we'll look at it from a historical perspective in from your perspective, like how do you value that in terms of taking those games played and looking at it from the totality of a player? How much do you weight and value that? And then um, what's your sort of strategy of valuing players at those tournaments? Well, as you know, Shane, because uh, you and I have attended a ton of these events in the past, uh, it really almost starts at the summer event at the Holinka. You almost qualify that as the, the entry-level event. And then, of course, you get to November this year in Plymouth and and then last week in, in Finland. Um, it's, it's a gradual build. Each tournament has a level of importance all into its own. Um, you know, for the Plymouth tournament, for example, some of the um, – top finish players didn't come over at that time. They elected to stay back. And for whatever reason, a variety of reasons um, last week, you know, it was interesting to see that uh, some of the players that haven't had the same momentum in, in season. So Casper Halton, and for example, um, you know, he's been just okay in season. It, you know, this event last week, it showcases him at his own age group gets him settled back into playing to his identity. So it's an important viewing for the scouting community because you could be misled a little bit when he's playing at Liga or at the J20 level in, in Finland. And now when he gets, he wore the C last week for Finland, which was kind of nice for him, I'm sure. And, you know, he got back to playing to his identity, you know, playing off the flank on the power play, uh, ripping pucks and uh, ended up with five points over the course of the three games. And so that's really valuable because, when you see that he kind of flatlined for a bit and now we can see him here in February, how's he doing amongst his own age group? That tells us something. And then of course the buildup is to the season ending world championships this year in Switzerland. But um, the U S team, it's interesting to see when they get back within just their age group, you know, not playing USHL games or against college teams, for example, um, just how dominant they can be. And, um, so it's got a lot of moving parts, but it's got a, an exceptional amount of value for a variety of different reasons. It's, it's funny you brought up Casper, uh, Jason. I felt in his U20, sorry, he went down for a little bit. He, he was built momentum from there. He looked much, much better, uh, to your point. I thought he looked much better than he did in Liga. Uh, 
you mentioned the program. I feel like, you know, again, we've talked about it. It's basically an all-star team. I feel like these, you got to weight these types of tournaments so heavily for them. And, uh, and to contrast that, I feel like it's an opportunity to see players shine against them at times and really see what they're made of. Um, Arsini Gritsyuk out of Russia, the New Jersey draft in the fourth round back in 2019. Uh, he was a player that dominated the state at this event and that really put him on the map for, for myself and our staff. Um, but my, my question for you is, have you had an Arsini Gritsyuk or for us, Niels Lundqvist situation where it's a bit later in the season, they absolutely dominate and perform tremendously at this tournament and, and you didn't have your eyes placed on the player as much as, as you probably should have. And then you had to basically create a new strategy around the idea of being able to see them a lot more often down the stretch. Well, it's interesting you position it that way because we've got a guy playing for Sweden this year that I think has got a lot of momentum. And so I really keyed in on him versus the U.S. last week. And that's uh, Tom Wielander, the defenseman there, the right shot D. Yep. Um, very similar to uh, Sandine. Uh, Pelica, in a lot of ways, when you, you kind of look at them from a first glance. But um, if you look at Wheelander's game last week, you know, not only – well, I'll give you the three. I, I was, you know, I'm just looking at my scouting notes as we're talking. But 24 minutes, 20 minutes, 23 minutes, specifically against the U.S. guys, six minutes on the penalty kill. Um, not only was he playing to his identity in terms of, you know, he's a skater, right? He's a two-way transitional type of a guy. Um, he was quarterback in one of the power plays. But what I was really looking at, because um, I want to see more momentum out of him, is those hard minutes. And I thought he elevated, and he's got a ton of momentum. So to your point, this is a kind of guy that I'm monitoring even more heavily as we get more towards April. Um, he's got a lot of momentum. I'm not going to be the least bit surprised that this kid falls in the first round as a draft this, uh, this June in Nashville. Jason, it's interesting that obviously Brad brought up uh, Niels Lundqvist because it was at the Sunsvall tournament in the five nations where everybody sort of jumped out and, and being at that tournament, that's, it was funny. Cause I was actually having a dinner with Gordy Clark and he said, who do you like? And I said, I like that kid. Well, you mean that little guy? And yeah, but the little guy's good. Right. So like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, he's not small, but he was a smaller defenseman at the time. And yeah. um, how much do you look, do you look at the February tournament with a little bit more waiting then maybe that November tournament where I always find, especially defensemen, they tend to charge a little bit later after Christmas, uh, particularly if they're a rookie in their in their general league. Um, so do you kind of do you weight that a little bit differently in terms of forwards and defensemen because it's uh, more of a, a late winter kind of tournament from that respect? Yeah, especially for the Europeans, right, Shane, because they get an earlier start than we do over here in North America in league play. So I absolutely do. They're they're closer to the finish line where North American teams are, you know, not even, you know, getting well, a month away from playoffs, but you know, they can obviously play in you know, May, some of them into early June. So um yeah, you know, I do weigh that a little bit differently. I want to see that the the player is uh, hitting his ultimate stride hopefully at this time of year. Obviously, you want him to peak at his ultimate level at uh, World Championships, but by that time, depending on how many minutes he's played at the club level, it's a grind for them by the time they get to April. So this this event, it's it's that one that they've built towards. It's not the end, but it's definitely starting to tell you a lot more now than you knew in November. So I'm with you. I think that the weight of this event, uh, especially with, I'll go back to Wheelander, you know, even Sandy and Palica, who had the 
you know, he, at the World Juniors, I think we would all agree um, it was a great experience for him, but he certainly ran out of gas towards the end of that event. Um, it was nice to see him kind of reestablish himself, uh, get back to playing all situations, of which he did at the World Juniors too, but at his own age group. So um, really important that way. I agree with your analysis on the defenseman because uh, it's hard labor, right, for the D at this time of year. When you're looking at it from a perspective of, you know, we've talked about some players that jump off the map. What about players that really fall flat? Is there anything from that perspective where you say, okay, well, they fell flat. Let's, let's use Ty Smith as an example of international player who I felt is always underperformed. Always, when he put on a Team Canada sweater, he was never the same as he was uh, when, when he was playing in the WHL, I found. Uh, what do you think about waiting a player that underperforms internationally at an event like the Five Nations? Well, I think that's interesting too. Um, these are good observations you guys are bringing to my attention here. Oliver Moore, if you want to use him, uh, last week uh, at the tournament, you only had one goal. And and we all know, um, you know, they were – for perspective, Oliver Moore is, is projected to be a first-round pick. Wherever you want to slot him is, is debatable. But if you look at some of the other guys on that team, you know, Will Smith, um, eight points in three games. He actually didn't have a point in one of the games, so eight points in the other two games. You know, Gabe Perot, 10 points. Ryan Leonard, I think, um, I'm just looking at my notes, eight points. So, you know, Oliver Moore, although he's not as a high-end producer as those guys, the fact that he only scored one goal and it was against Czechia, who struggled at the event, um, you know, how do you walk away from the event and, and, and evaluate it or – or overreact, and it's it's delicate. You, you got to be careful because Oliver Moore plays like his hair's on fire all the time. He's really active. He's you know quick up and down the ice. There's no shifts off for him. But what it did uh, tell me last week, to a degree, is that there's going to be moments in his game in season that he's playing so fast that sometimes the puck doesn't catch up to the brain, if that makes sense to you guys. And so it did tell me something. Um, I was fine with his compete. I thought that his offensive uh, chances and, and the way he was, he was a little bit hard to play with or last week. He was a little hectic, guys, and, uh, and that, uh, that stood out for me. You know, I'm glad you brought up that point about Oliver Moore because sometimes you find those players who are so active that they sometimes push themselves out of the play because they're so hell-bent on trying to make something happen that sometimes the game has to like, you have to let things unfold in front of you instead of like always forcing a play. And I think sometimes when he, he gets like that, he's always, he gets caught forcing and not like yeah. taking up, I guess more of a macro view of what's going on on the ice in front of him from that respect. And I don't fault the guys for that. It's just something that you have to recognize for the development profile moving forward when you're trying to work with a player like that, go, okay, here are the circumstances. This is what happens. Let's find a solution for that moving forward from that respect. Cause you never want to like take that tenacity and, you know, hair on fire away from a player like that. But um, Jason, I want to thank you very much once again for coming on the show. We always appreciate the insight and we look forward to speaking to you next week. Awesome guys. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on. That's Jason Bukla from Sportsnet. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these messages. 
Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat stats video editing tools visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information instat the institute of statistics the junior prospect hockey league is western canada's newest elite developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level the jphl features professional coaches and skill development coaches along with comprehensive practice game and academic schedule allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs to learn more and see why the jphl is the ideal choice for your student athlete and family visit juniorprospectshockeyleague.com Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. It's Hockey Prospect Radio, powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're now going to talk about the Montreal Canadiens prospects. And we're going to start off uh, with Philippe Massar, who is currently playing with the Kitchener Rangers in the Ontario Hockey League. Now, if you look at him just based on statistics alone and if you go back and listen to the discussion going into the draft and then on draft day and then maybe a couple days after draft day and then you look at what he's produced just on a production level with the kitchener rangers i think some people will like come away either disappointed or disillusioned or not quite understanding and i think the large part of it is one, I think there was a little bit of overhype. Um, I think he got pushed into that grouping of like the you know the three Slovaks, right? So there was a little bit more excitement around that and not really looking at what his skill set is and what he's going to project into. And part of it maybe the Kitchener Rangers as well, because they're not the strongest team playing in a very tough division, as always, you know, in the West and the Ontario Hockey League. So I think it's a matter of of that combination. And then I go back and I read my and my initial reports on him right at the end of the year. And I thought he was one of those tweeners where he could be a good, he could be a good second line right winger for you. Kind of like that F kind of six F five, depending how he, but he could also end up being an F seven on a third line is the guy who produced points because he only has to go against the second pairing and third pairing D right. As he matures into an early 20 year old. So you, I don't remember what you had said about that. It's been so long ago from the draft. I'm just curious to get your thoughts on, you know, where you were in that respect as well and what you currently see. Well, yeah, it's interesting. You bring up the, where he, where he was drafted and what people projected. What, one thing I'll say with Montreal and taking him is they probably had a, a tier range of players in that 
in that grouping. And I'm willing to bet one of the reasons they they went with Mesar wasn't just the skill set. It's the fact that he was close with Sofkowski. And that right. does happen. If you look at, oh, at Ottawa, when they brought in Brady Kachuk, they knew Brady was going to be a cornerstone. So they looked for players that uh, he was comfortable with. Josh Norris was one of those players. That's one of the reasons they 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 did the trade for Norris was that they were very close. Uh, you want you want that for knowing your cornerstones have uh, that stability. It's it's important. Uh, so in Maser's case, yeah, I you know I am as a second round player. That's uh, nothing against Montreal. You know. It, it, probably just outside the tier range I had him. Uh, one thing that's interesting is that, yeah, go, when, you're, when you're taking a player from extra league over in Slovakia and you put him in the OHL, as a scout, one of our jobs is to theoretically tell uh, our director what we think he would do in the O in his draft season if he was theoretically over, right? So uh, in, in Phillip's case, you know, I, I thought he was one of those 75 and 50 type of players, uh, you know, 30 goal score, 75 points in 50 50 games. That's kind of the way I looked at him in his draft season. And uh, based off off the production this season, he is falling under that. Now, what's interesting about Philip is that in his draft season, he had a coaching change under his team in Slovakia. Yeah, that's and right. He fell flat after that coaching change. He, he took time to adapt to the system uh, once the switch occurred. Now, in the case of Kitchener, they just uh, brought in a new coach as well. And that team has been inconsistent and struggling. So basically you have to parse how much of it is based off of Philip and his consistency and how much of it has to do with the system adapting and, to North American ice surface, yep. uh, adapting to the fact that he's playing junior hockey after coming from a men's league. Um, now that said, he did have a lot of minutes and he had a lot of responsibility while playing in Slovakia. It wasn't one of those situations where he was, he was getting sheltered minutes either. So you would expect him. Usually what you would expect from a scouting perspective is him to dominate the O here. The way I would view it right now is that he has had dominant performances mired in inconsistency, right? And that, that's kind of the way I would look at him. Uh, so how do you project him? Uh, th- that's a great question. I don't think the answer has been formed yet based off of what we've seen developmentally. That said, I also have questions about what he is as either a winger or a center because some of the best performances he had in his draft season were when he was playing center and when he was capable of being the possession driver through the neutral zone uh, he actually reminded me a ton of Noah Oslin specifically when discussing his neutral zone uh skating and right. how he how he looked to set up plays in the neutral zone but he doesn't have Austin's vision he's not nearly as good at finding the weak side option in transition he's not as slippery as Austin but he is a phenomenally deceptive skater more powerful bigger player than Austin so there were there were some some contrasts back and forth that I, I had uh, at Hockey Prospect with our staff when discussing him versus Oslin. I actually wrote in the black book uh, a bit of a comparison between the two as a result of that. And so the, the thing that I think Philip is looking like he's developing into is more of a hybrid Swiss Army Knife style player that needs to get a lot stronger along the walls in order to be a more effective player. Well, he's, he's still not very strong. He's still prone to being invisible and inconsistent, but he also is incredibly deceptive. He has a soft, soft set of hands. He can be very, very adaptable in transition, uses edge work, uses handling, uses deceptions, off looks to find options. Uh, one of my big things for me, why I thought he might be a third line energy player as opposed to a top six, was that he's very inconsistent with the shooting rates, and that has not changed. He's very inconsistent with the shooting rates. Hmm. It's, that's interesting. We're continue to um, watch him and see how he continues to perform. And there's a lot of environmental, you know, situations that you know restrict how much production you can currently have at that time so you can't all dump it on 
him as an individual player. He's still very, very young. Let's talk about Owen Beck as well. Uh, I would have liked to see him play, obviously, more at the World Juniors, uh, but the fact that he was there, um, you know, says something about his all-round game. From your perspective, just, like, watching him play this year, like, you know, obviously, Mississauga to Peterborough, got that one game up with Montreal, which is great for him. Like, you know, in the emergency call up thoughts on him overall as a player and what you've seen this year. Yeah. Admittedly, I haven't seen Owen too much this year. I haven't seen Mississauga too often, but what I have seen, obviously the U twenties and I saw him a couple times in the, much earlier in the season though. Uh, so the, the way I look at Beck's game is that in his initial draft season, he was using his, his skating ability, specifically his north-south open ice linear skating, to explode into space, chip pucks past players, chip and chase or chip and place around opposing defensemen, utilize his speed, cut inside, right? That was kind of the style he played. There wasn't a ton of horizontal or east-west cuts. Skating patterns were more predictable. Now, right. that's okay. That's fine with his play style. The instincts he has, the energy he brings, the power he brings is there. That said, he's not 6'4", he's 6 feet. So because of that, what you want to see when he's developing as a pro player and uh, you, you, what you really want to see is the, that he is adaptable and he can adjust his skating patterns so that he can mix up his options a little more than he currently is. Uh, the other aspect with, with Beck that I think he's improved, uh, based off, again, my limited sample, is that in his draft season, I use, sometimes I'll track certain things if I'm noticing a pattern of development that I want to see more of. With him, it was that he would chip and chase all the time, or chip and place, always attempt to use his skating, but rarely show me in tight handling that would be projectable in one-on-one situations uh, when attacking defensemen. And he needs that because, again, he's not 6'4". He can't just blow through players. He's going to have to use his handling to uh, create pivoting errors within defensemen's bases. He's going to have to use his handling to attack the triangle of a defenseman to Right. Uh, off, off put their defensive uh, uh, abilities, right? So the, the way I look with Beck is that he needs to continue to increase that aspect, which it's there. Like you look at his handling ability, you look at his dexterity, you look at the soft touch he has, the the concept of him, him being able to develop that is there. He doesn't do it at the rate necessary yet, but it's, it's coming. So it, with Beck, you know, I, I think maybe another player comp I would use is there's some Zach Hyman in him. Uh, loose comp, but there's a bit right. of Zach Hyman in him in the, in the sense that he's going to be able to explode in the space and make life uncomfortable down low. And he, when he remains active, he's very effective. So, uh, you know, mechanically speaking, I always expect this player to score more than he does. And from a scouting perspective, that worries me a little bit. Uh, in his draft year, I could not believe the, the production he had relative to the mechanical shooting ability he had. Philip Maser, for instance, there were mechanical inconsistencies that led to the predicting that he wouldn't be that high end of a goal scorer even in the O. So far, that's held. With Owen Beck, you really look at his in him mechanically. I expect 40 goals out of him, and that's. Um, I mean, I actually think he was on projected to do that before his trade. I'm pretty sure he was projected to do that before his trade. So he was this year. That's an improvement because in his draft year. The fact he only, I think he had, what, 19, 20 goals? That was shocking to me. So he has improved in terms of his goal scoring rates, which to me is a huge factor here because I think it was something that he should have been doing last year. So he's improved. There's jumps there. Uh, but admittedly, I haven't seen him a ton or enough to assess more of his off-buck game, more of the maturity, the well-roundedness of him. I, I haven't looked too much at it. But he, I think he's tracking in the right direction from what I've seen. 
and probably more so than than Mesar is. Well, certainly, and there's an adjustment period for Mesar, so you'd have to sort of like give him a longer rope uh, from that respect. And look, he went from playing in pro with men to with kids in the OHL, and it's like it must be night and day in terms of chaos and the lack of structure comparative to the two. I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to be that highly skilled and have, you still have structure, right? And that's a huge, that's probably a huge wake up call for Messer. Like, why isn't everybody where they're supposed to be? Well, that happens when you're playing with kids. But Bragger and I are going to take a short break and we'll be back right after this. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back in powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We are continuing to talk about the Montreal Canadiens prospects. Let's chat about Lane Hudson, who's having a phenomenal start to his freshman season at Boston University. Not often do you see a freshman with 36 points in 26 games. So from that perspective, we knew going into his draft year, this was a potential, like, very impressive offensive defenseman. And so you don't you don't discount his offensive awareness. We didn't discount his skill set in terms of his passing ability, his vision, his ability to run a power play. All of that was there. What like what the concern obviously was is when at the time he's five nine. I think he's now list, listed at five ten. Is that his ability to defend at an NHL level and defend against bigger players? Now we've seen smaller defensemen do that. Like for me, is this kid's just got to watch Jared Spurgeon defend? That's how you defend as a smaller defenseman in this league. You know, yes, puck retrievals are great. Um, yes, you're trying to project that at an NHL level, but he's played for the program so that you know he's got much better forwards to help him in that respect and then you're obviously he's having a, a great year in his first year in college hockey so there's like that's dimension when we looked when i looked at him going into the draft i'm like okay you take him in the early part of the second okay because there's an upside and there's value and then there's the risk and that's where i think you know obviously you talk we talked about it off air is if the kid was six feet tall or six one He's going top, probably going top ten, based on his skill set. But because he's not, and he's got to defend. Like you got to be a top end defender at that size. Um, 
you know, and that was the concern. And that's the risk versus reward. That's the ceiling, you know, versus the floor. And then where do you fit? And, you know, you and I talked about him going into the draft year. And I think both you and I were pretty similar in terms of what we thought thought the upside was. And then we thought what the risk was. Yeah, it's, it's one of those unique case studies in the game where you, I, I talked to you off air about this, but I'll, I'll bring it up, which is that, you know, I, I had Jason Robertson very high despite the risk factor with his with his athleticism and skating at his age, uh, which was very, very poor for, for our listeners. Uh, and, you know, the way I looked at Jason Robertson was, well, if he can develop his skating, which I think he can, because at that time, you know, can, be an, average, people, can be an average skater. Can he just simply be that? Yeah, well, I mean, he had like, you know, some people referred to him as, as, as being elastic. He just had no muscle on him, right? So the way I looked at that is there's two ways to look at that, right? Either that's not good because it, it indicates that uh, genetically he's not, he's, not, he's not Eric Lindros, essentially. Or you look at it and say, well, there's opportunity for growth, growth right? And that there's, there's two sides to that. Some, sometimes, you know, Mark Mashiach, this draft, for instance, is a horse on ice. You, 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 it's, it's exciting in the sense you don't have to worry about it. Right. But it's also one of those situations where what you see is what you're going to get few, uh, further down the road. Right. So that's that's the way it's a greater at. level of certainty. Right. With a greater level of certainty in projection with Lane Hudson. You know, he really, he really could have been a top five pick if he was six one. Simple as that. that. That's how extraordinary this kid is when it comes to his offensive gifts. One thing that separates Lane Hudson from a lot of other players that have these low percentage chances of making it based off of their 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 size is that he he has that i, I always i talk about him all the time i'll never stop talking about that arvidson like it factor to him where there's just he he's going to will himself to the promised land and, and he's always had that and those players for all the young scouts listening or people want to know why some players uh get drafted too late and they end up making it usually they always have this this energy this, that just never gets uh, uh, diminished on the ice, no matter what's happening. And right. Lane Hudson has that in spades. He has that it factor to him, that instinct to take over. Um, so, you know, one thing with Lane that's very different with him relative to a lot of these other smaller defensemen is that he doesn't just bring it offensively. He he tries his heart out defensively, and that will make up a lot of ground because he does not have to be a good defender. He can just be a below average, average defender. Yeah. Average to below average, he's set. Doesn't have to worry. Right? That's the thing that, admittedly, from a scouting perspective, can be a little difficult sometimes to to evaluate because you're always, as a scout, from a defensive perspective, you're looking at it from a zero sum perspective. Yeah, right. You, the yeah. zero sum matters a great deal. But you know, Quinn Hughes, for instance, right? That was the Quinn Hughes has very little defensive instincts for the game, but it's not a big concern because he's that gifted offensively he's that good at moving pucks right lane hudson's not at quinn hughes level but i think he's actually ahead of him defensively in terms of instincts and willingness to play the position correctly i really do so i remember i remember one play specifically the u18s that really concerned me in terms of trying to figure this kid out and evaluating where to rank him he was he was up against yuri kulik in a one-on-one and Yuri Kulik was trying to drive inside on him. And Yuri Kulik is an explosive, athletically gifted player. And Lane held him to the outside. Hudson held him. And I said, okay. He got when inside he, his hands. He I got remember that. His, yeah, he, yeah, he got inside on him. He, he kept him the outside. He, he, he gave it everything he had. And he was successful. And will he be as successful at the rate you saw, saw there with U18s? No. But 
he'll still be, he's still willing to do it. And that, that's a huge part of it. You know, Sam Gerard, not nearly as gifted a, a traditional rush defense at the same age. Right. And so the, these types of things you, you take into account and you say, you know, probably should have put them way higher. To be honest with you, from our ranking, I, I think one of the lessons you got to learn from it is if you think he's top five at six one, don't drop him back as far as we did. It's, it's a lesson you got to learn. It's a lesson I'm trying to learn. Um, but yeah, Hudson's uh, been extraordinary as a freshman. And uh, yes, he will have the def- cycle defense is going to suffer just as a result of his size. His box out defense is going to suffer and his transitional rush defense, despite what I just said about him versus Kulik, when he's going up against Larry Nachushkin, he's going to have trouble. And yes, he'll need an insulator, right? But yeah. it, it's he's a special player. The, the kid's special. And uh, he's showing it this year. It's uh, It'll be very interesting to see what he looks like in four to five years and how, you know, how he looks with somebody like, say, Caden Gulick. You know, you think about pairings and, and yeah. what he could do. So it'll be, hey, it could be a home run. Uh, One thing I'll say about it too, from just a strategical point of view, is Montreal had a lot of picks. Montreal had the first overall pick. Montreal had, uh, what was it, two firsts and a couple seconds there, right? So what Montreal did is you solidify your draft and then you home run it. It's just like what uh, Mark Yannetti and the LA Kings did when they had, uh, uh, was it two firsts, two yeah. seconds, three firsts, right? What they did, they took the home run Arthur Kaliev swing after already solidifying their draft with high four players. They took, um, uh, what's the defense when they took directly in front of them? I always refer to him as Mr. Vanelli, he's Swedish. Well, <laughs> Tobias Bjornfort. Thank you, Bjornfort. Uh, I was thinking Bjorkstrand. I'm like, well, it's not Bjorkstrand. So Tobias Bjornfort, right? Solidify the draft, then take your swing. Right. Look how they do with they dealt with risk. Montreal did the exact same strategy. You have Sokowski solidified. You have Macer there solidified. They know they have more picks coming right after or, or sorry. They, and they had um, Owen Beck. Uh, yeah. Owen Beck already solidified. So they already had their draft solidified in their mind. So what do you do now? You, now you're swinging. Now you close your eyes a little bit. Maybe one eye open, one eye closed. You swing that bat as hard as you can. And that's what they did. Hey, it's paying dividends. That's a, that's how you that's how you look back and people reflect in drafts and say, well, who really stood out doing well in this draft? Well, Montreal, if, if they get the home run pick with Hudson, you know, it's it's not so similar to Columbus with Svozil, who we talked about. Yeah, right. Svozil, you get in the third round looking like a home run pick. Well, that's exactly what Lane Hudson's looking like for Montreal. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And we talk about draft strategy in that respect. That's why I think this is, I think Lane Hudson's an interesting case study, you know, and particularly I use that, I would use this as a case study, you know, when the scouting school is finished for, you know, younger scouts looking at it is you can't get caught um, as much as I like to do reports and I like to look at history and I look, look at all these different factors and weight them is, you have to go back, and that's why it's great to have these conversations with guys like Pat Malloy and with Dr. Kevin Willis is because there's other attributes that make players successful. And you had mentioned about Lane Hudson, about sort of the mental acuity that he has and some grit attributes that he has and drive attributes that he has. And you have to be able to identify those and then be able to figure out and test to make sure, okay, where's his strengths? Where do his strengths lie? you know, in between the ears, because that will dictate his abilities forward. You know, that's going to be more, that's going to make up for the fact that he's probably going to be 5'10 and weigh, you know, 175 pounds. Like he's really going to look very much like Jared Spurgeon or, or Samuel Jard in that respect. So that will help make up for that because if he has the learnability, situational awareness, you know, 
be able to task switch, you know, have some resiliency in his game. Uh, I think that's going to matter for him moving forward. And that's what you try to have to figure out when you have a player like that, instead of just, you know, sort of arbitrarily dismissing him because of that size, you know, I can say, yes, there are currently, you know, 10 players in the NHL that are defensemen that are five, nine and smaller. There's a reason for that. Right. And then you get to five, 10 and there's a little bit more of those guys, you know, five, 10 and smaller, you know, a few of those guys around, um, but it's really small, but that means you don't dismiss them. You have to figure out, is Lane Hudson, what similarities does he have to a Jared Spurgeon and to a Samuel Gerrard and what made them successful? And can that build out from that respect? So that's where we're going to find out in about four years on Lane Hudson, um, where we had him, you know, personally, and then what ended up transpiring. But so far, he's having a great season as a freshman. But Brad and I are going to take a short break. Stay tuned for hour two right after these messages. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat stats video editing tools visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information instat the institute of statistics the junior prospect hockey league is western canada's newest elite developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level the jphl features professional coaches and skill development coaches along with comprehensive practice game and academic schedule allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs to learn more and see why the jphl is the ideal choice for your student athlete and family visit juniorprospectshockeyleague.com Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM, NHL Network Radio. Now, here's your hosts, Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. This is Hour 2 and brought to you by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level at JuniorProspectHockeyLeague.com. Speaking with Mike McMahon from the College Hockey News, as well as if you're not... um, reading his Substack articles of the College Hockey Insider, you are missing out because I just happened to read your article uh, about the bean pot, and that's our topic of conversation today. I am wearing uh, <laughs> my Harvard hat that, uh, yeah, we unfortunately lost in a shootout. Uh, for the record, I can't stand the shootout, uh, but it is what it is in that circumstance. So I know there's a few NHL executives and uh, personnel who are alumni of Northeastern are going to take some glee and mirth in uh, me losing losing to them, but they, they won fair and square. So um, congrats to Northeastern University. Third time in four years, fourth time in five years, isn't it? Which one is it? Four, fourth time in five years. That's yeah. crazy because they hadn't won pretty much ever. And then. Yeah, just, it was they, 88, I think. I think it was yeah. like in the 80s. Yeah, I think I was like 15 or 16 the last time they won. And now they're just like kicking the crap out of everybody. So it's good for them. 
good for them, right? So, no, I give them credit for that. And it just makes the Boston hockey scene so much better in terms of when all four of those universities are competitive. And the crazy thing is Harvard actually has more drafted NHL um, players than the other three. Which Would you have ever said that 10 years ago? No. No. It it would be almost laughable to say that right now. I think Harvard has 15 players who are drafted into the NHL. So. Right. So that's that's a testament, obviously, to, you know, the whole whole organization and the coaching staff and everybody in the recruiting, because, you know, it's not easy for, you know, teams in the ECAC to recruit based on, you know, they have some challenges comparative to obviously other universities from that standpoint. Your impressions of the overall beanpot this year and not just the product on the ice, because I thought all the games were excellent. And I really enjoyed all of them. And thankfully we can watch them uh, where I am up in Canada and I love the tournament, but do you think this bean pot has just taken it to another level in terms of its national exposure? Cause it used to be like this, just a Boston tournament that everybody in the Massachusetts area loved seeing, but now it's actually must watch TV across the hockey landscape. Yeah. It's interesting. Right. I mean, I think, what well, yeah, NHL Network, I think, had a national across the U.S. Yeah. Uh, was it TSN that picked it up in Canada? Or? Yeah, and then you could watch. So, yeah, so we had, we were fortunate, and we we love yeah. it. Yeah, it's great. I mean, and I think it's also part of that appeal is is obviously the fact that so many of the players come from different areas too, right? Like, there's been so many times where you go back 30 years ago majority of the players in those beanpot games were all from kind of within a 20 mile radius of the city. <laughs> they were all from the Boston area. Uh, but now these, I mean, these, these teams are recruiting internationally, not just nationally. So uh, I think it speaks to just more players being involved from different parts of the country. And usually too, I mean, the other big part of it is these four teams are, are usually four of the top 15, 20 teams in the country. Yeah, that's significant. And the fact of, I think I added it up. Now I could be wrong. Uh, it was a quick addition, but it's, I think between the four teams, there's fi- oh, just over 50 players drafted into the NHL. Wow. So wow. you have eyes. Yes. That's crazy. Like you on average, yeah. 12 to 13 players per team, and they're spread out all over the National Hockey League. So, I mean, not only with the recruiting process of it being more internationally based than ever before, but then you have the eyes of the hockey world on because almost every team is represented at the Beanpot. <laughs> You know, and, crazy, and, you could, yeah. and you couldn't say that 10 years ago. I remember going to the Beanpot 10 years ago and, you know, and there might been a might have been 30 players drafted, maybe, you know. And, and most of them were probably concentrated on, on BC and BU. Yes. At that point yes. in time. Yeah. Well, 100 percent. Right. So you might have got 10 in BC, maybe another 10 in BU, maybe two at Northeastern, maybe a couple at like Harvard. You know, it's just it. I've never seen it that vast at this point, and the fact where you're you're over fifty players, and that's significant. And and to me, it says something about the growth of obviously college hockey, uh, the willingness for or, uh, NHL teams to draft players going into college. I think it's a tactical advantage, personally. You know, mm-hmm. when you look at it, because you look at player development from that standpoint. This is why you know I like talking to you about college hockey and that development path is because they get that extra year or two years on yep. average comparative to their CHL counterparts. So instead of going into the American league as a 20 year old, you're going in as maybe a 21, sometimes 22 at the longest, that's 23. But those extra two years are huge 
because I think people forget how great the American Hockey League is. It's the second best league in the world. So for me, when I look at players that are going through the college system, they just have a greater probability of playing in the National Hockey League because they have that growth cycle. And is that something you've seen when you're watching Mm -hmm. the Beanpot and watching those players come out? Have you noticed that specifically since the salary cap era has come in where like teams are more interested in having players and drafting players who have a longer track record. And that helps like, that's why the, I think the numbers of college hockey players in the NHL has dramatically increased in the last 15 years. It's a really good point. Yeah. And I, well, it also, it means that these teams have a longer period of time to make up their mind on whether or not a kid's going to get an entry level contract, right? You don't have to make that decision two years after you draft them as a 20 year old, you, like you said, it, it drags it out a little bit. It gives you longer, gives those NHL teams a longer period of time to evaluate the player and decide, is this kid worth one of our 50 contracted slots that we have to sign them to a, to an entry level contract. The other thing too, uh, and, and I've done a couple stories on this. Now, the most prominent one uh, was one, I think I was, I think it was for NHL.com. It was a few years ago, uh, but it was on Michael Matheson. Oh, it was, it was for USA hockey. Uh, and, he talked about how him and his dad, you know, before he went to Boston College, he played in the Beanpot. Uh, before he went to Boston College, he sat down and and I don't know which Quebec team had drafted him, but he was like, you know, they basically looked at the two schedules and he was trying to decide for a, a, a guy in his position. He's a bigger defenseman. He knew he needed to get stronger. He needed to develop more physically. Uh, they went in and looked and laid out the schedules for, for the two teams that he was looking at. One was Boston College and one was, um, I want to say it was Quebec City, maybe it was Moncton, whoever, whoever drafted him in the, in the human JHL. And he was like, you know, basically he laid it out and said, how many days a week can I lift? How many days a week can I be in the gym with my strength and conditioning coach, making sure that I'm putting on the muscle that I need to put on? And one, it was, one. that's, yeah. And, and with the college schedule with just the Friday, Saturday games, he's like, you know, he basically looked at it and said, I'm not going to lift the, the day of a game or or probably the day before. So he laid it out. And at least with, with the college schedule, he was able to get in two and some weeks, three workouts a week. And that was really one of the deciding factors for him because he thought he just needed to physically get a lot stronger. Um, so I think it's twofold. I think it's, it is the longer, the longer life cycle of, of the GMs and the scouting staffs having a longer period of time to evaluate before they have to decide whether or not to sign the player. Uh, and then two, I, I think, physically like in terms of being able to jump into the ahl right away i agree with you and i think a lot of it has to do with the extra time these guys were able to spend off the ice just getting physically stronger able to kind of handle that load a little bit more that physical load from the games the game that you watched i mean obviously the finals uh were there any players that really stood out to you that just under that type of scrutiny and intensity when the td garden is packed um, and alumni are in the building and yelling and screaming. Who stood out to you in, the, in that game? The biggest, I thought Devin Levi was the biggest one. I mean, and he's shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, was, it might probably the best goalie in college hockey, but he's kind of had, I mean, he, it hasn't been linear for him this this year, the way it was last year. Where he was just dominant start to finish. There's been some ups and ups and downs this year that he's had to deal with. I mean, they played Harvard. What was it? Uh, about a month ago, the first yeah. of January, gave up eight goals. They lost eight to eight to four in that game. So it hasn't been the the type of dominant year that it was a year ago for him. There's been some ups and downs for him to deal with. He it feels like he's coming into his own here over the last month, uh, and really has turned it on. Uh, and 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 no surprise, the Northeastern team has has come along for that ride. Uh, but for him first and foremost, 
not only in in the shoot. I mean, he was excellent in the shootout. Thought he was really good in the overtime. I mean, that three on three overtime. As much as I dislike it, it was played the way you envision three on three overtime yeah. is going to look like, with just chances up and down the ice. Yeah. And and he had to make some big saves in that overtime period. Harvard was putting on some pressure there late in the game as well. So he was the one that stood out. And then it's it's kind of the big names, right? I mean, no surprise. I know. I'm not a huge fan of the shootout either, but it happened. Uh, but who's the guy that comes up big and scores the big goal? It's Aiden McDonough, right? I mean, it's, yeah. those are the two guys. It's the two guys you would expect to carry Northeastern in those situations, carry Northeastern in those situations. But at the same time, I mean, the, the big names in Harvard stood out too. I thought Coronado had a really good game, and uh, it's a pressure-packed situation. I mean, you saw how packed the building was and just the environment. There's not a lot of times that, that – players like that are going to be in those types of environments with that many people, right? Uh, until you get to the frozen tournament, four. conference finals, frozen yeah. four. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Mike, want to thank you very much for coming on your show. I really appreciate it. Everyone out there, make sure you read his stuff on College Hockey News, and he's a College Hockey Insider as well. Great stuff. Uh, and uh, look forward to speaking to you in a few weeks. Sounds good. Thanks. That's Mike McKenna. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after these important messages. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. It's Hockey Prospect Radio powered by Junior Hockey Prospect League. Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level at JuniorProspectHockeyLeague.com. We're speaking with Patrick Williams, HL correspondent for NHL.com and AHL.com. Patrick, thanks for coming on the show again. Great, Always appreciate it. Great to be well, here. Around the AHL is our segment. So this week we're going to continue to go down alphabetical order. So let's talk about the Calgary Wranglers. And we had chatted last year about, you know, them moving into Calgary, being close proximity, similar to what obviously Vancouver has done in Abbotsford, what, you know, Winnipeg has done, you know, with the Moose, Toronto and with the Marlies. And how critically important that is for the development of, you know, your players and the development of your staff, right? Because it's really a training ground for potential staff members moving up into your parent club. So to start off, not even to get into the players, but let's talk about the job that Mitch Love has done. Like for a young coach, I think he's like only 38. I remember watching him play junior, right? So like makes me feel old there at the, at the moment. But if you look at his track record of what he's done, he's won at every stage. 
had successful franchises. They've always been highly competitive and he's developed players, whether he's at the junior ranks or in the American league, which mm-hmm. for me, that's the first look. I like wins, of course. And I like to see a team, you know, potentially win a championship. But the number one thing for me is, can you develop players? And I think, you know, based on everything you talk to his players about him, um, you don't want to say he's a new age coach because, you know, he has some elements of old school in him. If you ever watched him play, but mm-hmm. you know, he could fit, he could have fit in to be a, an eighties coach at any time or seventies coach as well. But I just think his ability to understand how his players learn and then how they adapt to situations and how he communicates to them, I think makes all the difference in the world and his ability to communicate that to the media and then onto the fans. Yeah, you know, communication-wise, he's very, very straightforward, very kind of like plain-spoken. He doesn't, you know, there's not a lot of uh, buzzwords or flowery language or anything like that. You know, like he's one of those guys. He means what he says, says what he means. Um, his message is very clear to his players. Uh, not a yeller and screamer, uh, but certainly he knows what he wants, right? And, and the players, I think, respond to that 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 level of clarity. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is um, the, the development part slash winning. Um, so last year in Stockton, they went to the Western Conference final game six. They pushed really good Chicago Wolves team that right. far, uh, yeah. potential corner cup champs. Uh, for my money, the, the Stockton would have won the cup if not for that, that Wolves team. Um, and you saw with those players, you know, they, they, they got that high pressure playoff level experience. So that's the benefit of winning in terms of development. Um, a little bit of a different element this year coming into Calgary and, and you know, this speech with some players and, and with Mitch Love, and there's a, there's an adjustment there. Now you're, you're in that, that bubble. Now you're in that, 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 that level of scrutiny every night that, that you that never had before looking down on you. You're not often in, in, in Stockton. Um, and then media scrutiny, the fan scrutiny. Look what happened with Jacob Peltier. Like that yeah. doesn't happen when you're in Stockton. Yeah, like Daryl Sutter's there a lot of nights. His son Brett is the captain of the team, so you got the NHL coach right there uh, taking things in. You got um, you know obviously the GMs and the other management figures, and just yeah, the, you're just in that general um, high pressure Canadian hockey um, atmosphere that you didn't have in in Stockton. That's you know tons of benefits to it, but it is an adjustment. So they admitted that a little bit early on that that, that t- took some getting used to and uh, learning just how to kind of deal with that pressure that they didn't have before. And uh, they certainly have handled it well. They're now first place overall in the league. I mean, they've been an absolute juggernaut really. Well, since about like first week of November, they just, uh, and really, you know, for my money, the best division in the, in the entire American hockey league, they've been right up there. With uh, the best goalie. Best goalie, Dustin and Wolf. Dustin Wolf. Yeah. And I know he's Dustin the best Wolf. goalie in the league. I think he's ready. If, you know, personally, I think he's ready. You know, if you, if you put him up in the NHL right now, I think he would handle it quite well. Um, super athletic, super level-headed. I mean, he's got almost like, you know, you talk to him and he's just like, you almost are like, do you have a pulse? And I mean that in a good way. Like, you know, there's just so calm, right? Like, he doesn't seem to get rattled about anything. Um, and then you watch him certainly and it carries right over into his play. I mean, um, so yeah, it's, it was funny. So at the all-star game last week in Laval, him and, uh, Lucas Dostal from San Diego, um, were kind of one, two, there, uh, co-MVPs. And uh, as I said, you know, you're looking at two future, not just NHL goalies, but I think 
high, high level NHL goalies. Dustin Wolf, uh, you know, is, is going to be a star, I think. Well, and he, before we jump on to the, the Charlotte Checkers, I just think he, his game translates similar to what UC Saros' game translated to. Mm-hmm. Not the biggest goalie, but, you know, he, he has enough technical understanding, but he has the mental side of the game yeah. to, like, to stay. He has the resilience to stay mm-hmm. calm and relaxed, and but reset quickly. Right, yes. When things go badly, right? And yeah. that to me is 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 really the big key for his success. Let's talk about the Charlotte Checkers. And you know, we had talked about it previously. You know, obviously um, you know, Carolina had a great run in there, and then now Florida's in there, and they're they're so happy about it because they mm-hmm. just had that stable franchise. Talk about like that resetting a lot of their prospects and their coaching staff, not having to deal with sharing franchises and having something that is a stable home. Yeah, I mean, for the longest time, Florida just had the, you know, it's funny, Dave Andrews, um, the former president and CEO of the HL, you know, Bill Torrey and him went into the HL Hall of Fame, right? And so Bill Torrey was with the Florida Panthers for 25 years. And, you know, what if Dave said that one of the reasons I got to know Bill so well was because the Florida Panthers affiliations were always kind moving. of crisis. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were always moving. So, you know, they got to know each other well over the years and, you know, became very good friends as a result, um, you know, even, you know, more recently, I mean, Florida just bounced from one team to the next, to the next. I mean, you look at Florida's history through the years of affiliations, it's, it's. And it, direct, it directly affected their prospect development directly yeah. affects it because there's so no much. stability. I mean, it does rattle the players and the coaching staffs and, you know, they go to do their jobs, but you, mm-hmm. that uncertainty keeps your mind away from what's important. Sure. And now they're in a real good uh, market like Charlotte, uh, real good infrastructure in terms of the, you know, the way the team is, is managed and operated. It's an independently owned team. Um, and logistics wise, it's fantastic. There's about 20 flights a day between um, Charlotte and South Florida. So you can move your players back. No problem. Uh, the other part now is it's been, a, it's been a little bit of an adjustment because uh, last year they split the team with Seattle. Seattle's now Coachella Valley. So Florida's kind of uh, running the whole show now. So they brought in some good veterans. They, uh, Riley Nash, for example, came in, signed an AHL deal. So you got a real high quality, high character veteran coming in. Uh, they brought in some other, um, you know, good experienced players to kind of help some of the younger guys along. Zach Dalpe's the captain. He returned. So, um, yeah, it, for I think for Florida, it's just a, a, at long last, uh, they've had such a wild ride, really, I mean, for most of the existence of their franchise with their affiliates. Now they finally have something that I think they want to settle into and, right. and, and do long-term. And, you know, NHL fans or the media, you know, people around hockey, you know, we wonder why certain franchises never seem to be consistently successful. And the, one of the first things I look at is the consistency of their American league franchise, like in the same location with the same staff and like same business staff, like, you know, there's like, it's just cemented and that they're a part of the, you know, organizational identity and that like they're, you look at Providence and Boston for an example, like long-term commitment, Washington and and Hershey, like that really matters. Mm -hmm. Me. I mean, I look at their development, you know, obviously their draft and development efficiencies, but that is like, those are the two first things I look at. And if those two things aren't stable, forget it. I don't care what GM you have, man. It's it's not a magic wand. 
it's not going to happen. It's not going to be successful. So uh, I'm curious to see if this really is the turning point for the Florida franchise and how much this impacts it. Uh, Patrick, want to thank you very much for coming on the show again. Always appreciate the AHL talk and look forward to speaking with you next week. Absolutely. My pleasure. That's Patrick Williams, correspondent for NHL.com and AHL.com. It's our segment uh, around the EHL. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these messages. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. This is Hockey Prospect Radio, powered by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to another level at juniorprospecthockeyleague.com. We're speaking with Mark Cronowit, Executive Director of Silent Ice, in our Game Changer segment. So, Mark, thanks again for coming on the show. And the topic we're going to discuss this week is player development model in your academy that balances the WHL and the NCAA requirements because parents and, and you know, obviously the players have different ideas and different streams that they want to follow for their next steps in hockey and trying to balance that in an academy. I've had other academies tell me they're more comfortable moving with one stream or the other and not having kids that are really focused on both. And how do you, how do you balance that model uh, for those specific players, particularly, obviously I think both of them should be pushing academics. We'll get into that discussion at another time, but you know, how do you balance both of those those aspects. Well, Shane, I think you're wearing a Harvard hat today. So I am. I um, as we're recording, the bean pot plays today. So uh, they're playing Northeastern. So uh, I'm just wearing that for good luck tonight. And I've sent out a couple messages to some NHL personnel who uh, are Northeastern alums. So yeah, I'm sure they won't talk to me for a while if Harvard wins. Yeah, great stuff. No, and uh, you know, I, I think that hockey has many different paths to pro hockey. Uh, that's what this show is all about, Shane. And you guys have been doing it for 18 seasons, talking about the different ways that athletes progress through these models. And for me, I, I back it up all the way to, again, 1993. Uh, at the time, uh, the CHL uh, was big into their uh, hockey and education program, specifically the standard player agreements that athletes sign when they do move up into major junior. Uh, they're afforded a year of university for every year they play or committed to a to, to that organization. And, you know, it's hard to argue with, uh, 
when the opportunity comes at you and you're 16 years old or 15, 16, 17 years old to sign a contract uh, that includes that if you don't play pro hockey and, and make that next step that you can go to university and that's paid through paid for via those CHL scholarships. And, you know, I've always admired their commitment to education from that level. You know, that means that athletes who play in the CHL or that are, are promoted from our leagues and up to that different level, a lot of those players then have that opportunity if they don't play pro hockey and uh, to uh, be drafted and, you know, it, uh, pardon me, to play in the university hockey. And it's not like it's a total dead end. Uh, if you well, don't I think... end up getting drafted, you know, you look at guys and I know it's a hard one, but like you got to go almost back to guys like Joel Ward or, you know, you got well, Derek I think Ryan it's a matter of perception. I think yeah. that's the biggest issue. You know the difference between a fifth-round pick that played in the WHL and a fifth-round pick that goes on to play college hockey, the difference between the two of those players, and maybe like this WHL player doesn't get signed, differences, nothing, right? And if that WHL player goes on to play, say, for you know University of Alberta Golden Bears, which is a great program, then they're looked down upon because they're playing that. But they're they're going through the same path as the the NCAA Division One player who could be playing in North Dakota or Wisconsin, like and they're a fifth round pick. The value of that player shouldn't change. It's just the perception of what U Sports is across the hockey world, and I find it it's actually ridiculous because those players should get the same amount of attention. But it just doesn't sort of work out that way. And I think that's a large part, honestly, is a problem of youth sports and how they market and then and that and changing that narrative and perception. But also the CHL has to help them in that, too. Yeah, no. And I, I would agree, like with the youth sports like, they, you know, you go to a game, you don't see a lot of NHL scouts. None at these games. No, no, there's none. And, uh, you know, if you look at the path, a lot of the, these guys take a lot of the guys for like University of Alberta has done a phenomenal job of moving their athletes to pro hockey, but a lot of them end up going to Europe and, and playing in right. Europe. And, and, and then, uh, you know, you have this rare thing like a Derek Ryan who look how long that path is, but then let's compare it. You know, I, I, I'm uh, involved with the Spruce Grove Junior A Saints and, you know, we've got a hundred players that have been promoted into the NCAA. I was looking at our board yesterday and so up in our lounge, uh, you have all the team, all our players that go to the NCAA. And then above that, we have a list of all the NHL players. And it's shocking. You know, we see guys that, you know, you have your athletes that go directly into junior A hockey. You know, as 16-year-olds, I'd use like a Coolman's or a Makar, guys like that, that are like their Jets. They're going to be drafted as 17-year-olds, to you know, in the NHL entry draft. And, you know, those players are even a different path. You know, they're one or two years in that league right into NCAA one or two years uh, to either the American Hockey League or to the NHL. And then you have this other path of guys that are maybe slide in the draft, maybe don't get drafted until they're 18 or 19 years old. I look at a guy like Carson Soucy in, 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 yeah, perfect uh, example in Seattle, you know, longer path, but still a good path. Matt Benning, longer path, still a good path. You know uh, these guys who kind of take this thing and I, you know, I, I give a good friend of mine a hard time about it. Uh, his name's Tran Sandwith. Tran played five years in the Western League. Great academic. He was ac all academic multiple times in the, in the Western Hockey League. As a 20-year-old, he's in the American Hockey League. And so he's in his fourth year pro, and he shows up at Edmonton Oilers camp. And there's this guy who shows up at the NCAA that had never uh, just recently signed. His name was Dan McGillis. And Dan definitely is and no knock to Dan McGill great hockey player, but definitely got the shiny spoon 
uh, syndrome that we often see. So Tran had been to uh, four NHL camps already. Uh, uh, Dan comes in, it's his first camp. Everybody's like, wow, look at this guy. And, you know, he just had that more time to develop. And, you know, Tran's down in the American Hockey League uh, that year and Dan's up with them to Oilers. And, you know, we see guys like that when they come in, they're more ready. It's the first time that they've actually been able to, to fully engage and compete for a spot on those teams. Now it's changed a little bit. Now those players actually participate in development camps in the summer. So they get a lot of early looks at them uh, when they're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. And uh, it allows those NHL teams to make decisions if they're going to sign them. But you know, that longer, slower path, if you're a later developer, uh, you know, if you look again, back it up even further where it starts, it goes to this, you know, this idea of having a, you know, a, a U15 draft in the WHL. Now, I personally disagree with it. So do uh, I. You, well, you know, <clears throat> you look at the, the OHL and the Q actually draft a year later uh, for their athletes and their percentage of players that play. Uh, we did a study through Dark Horse Analytics on this and looked at the differences between the OHL, the Q and the WHL this is about a year and a half ago. And it's surprising. So the WHL drafts a year early. And so who gets drafted? You get kids who are earlier developers, has a little bit more to do size at that age. A lot of the players haven't grown. And so out West here, what ends up happening is a lot of those, what I would call high end talents, uh, maybe they haven't grown yet. They end up in the junior A system. Uh, they don't end up get drafted. They go to the junior A system. They pay three years in the Alberta Junior League or the BC League or the Saskatchewan League and get a scholarship and they get another four years of development. And then when they're ready to move up to be a real contender for becoming a professional prospect, they're 22, 23 years old. And they're men. And, and they're men. And, you know, you and I have talked about this theory of, you know, how does the brain develop, especially in young men? You know, the man, the, the brain doesn't really fully develop until you're like 25 years old, right? And the game of hockey is so, in, you have to be so intelligent the game is so fast and you know, your brain needs that time to develop the process. And so I, I think there's lots of different ways. And I, I think you finally started to see it now though. You see in the entry draft, you don't just see 17 year olds getting drafted. You see guys like Jared Davidson get drafted and as a 19 year old, he got passed over three times or hopefully Thomas Millich this year gets drafted or been passed over twice. So, you know, I think you're now starting to see where the NHL uh, when they're when they're sitting at the draft table, they're willing to look at players who've come from different paths. It's not just the 17 year olds; it's some of those older players, and I think that's advantageous to all players. Uh, for us at our academy, you know, we've reached we're, we're now trying to promote to both leagues and trying to get opportunities to both our players so that players do have a choice. So if you want to take that other path, uh, we'll help support those athletes in that. Uh, that includes working with NCAA schools to have them out to our events. Uh, to, to provide scouting packages on those players so that they can acquire those athletes and get to know them better. And it is a little bit of a different path, but for our athletes specifically, if they're going to go to the NCAA, it would be junior prospects, hockey league, junior a, uh, and then sign in a commit or, uh, to go down to the U S and play in the NCAA. So, uh, you know, we try and tell our parents that both options are good options. And a lot of times it just has to do with timing chain. Like, when are you ready? And uh, to be fair, you know, to play the NCAA, you don't have to be ready to your 19 or your 20. Um, uh, major junior is quite a bit different. By the time you're 19, you're not a prospect in the league anymore if you haven't cracked the lineup, right? So uh, I think it's just a little bit of a different path. And uh, both paths are good because both support education in the end. And uh, I've seen a lot of uh, CHL athletes uh, do really well through their studies and 
become great professionals and contributors back to the game. Uh, and uh, so either way, in my opinion, is is positive. But let's make sure that we don't end up in that situation where you get out of out of hockey and uh, when you're 30 years old, you're going back to get your GED because you didn't put your time in. Well, 100%. Yeah, and that, that has to be, you know, I know it's an emphasis both, you know, on the in the CHL side, of course, obviously in the junior A side because they're pushing towards NCAA. Uh, I just think there needs to be more promotion in terms of youth sports and having packages going back out to the teams. Because if you want to fill out your American League roster with good pros, honestly, I'm be looking at youth sports. Like yeah. these all, they all played like four, probably three or four years minimum in the CHL and they're getting three years or four years in at that point they're 25. So, or 24 or 23, depending on how old they are. So at that respect, but Mark, want to thank you very much once again for coming on our show. Really appreciated the conversation. Let's talk next week. Thanks Shane. Have a great week. We're going to take a short break on hockey prospect radio. We'll be back right after these messages. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. This is Hockey Prospect Radio powered by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's Newest developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to another level at juniorprospecthockeyleague.com. I'm speaking with Dave Poulin in our Behind the Curtains segment. Dave, thanks for coming on the show again. Appreciate it. So this uh, topic um, is going to be interesting because it directly relates to the NHL trade deadline that's coming up in the next couple weeks. So... The topic today is projecting the value of draft picks and trades. And, you know, as we said off air, it's, of course, it's very subjective. You have to look at the particular teams. Some teams draft really well and some teams develop really well and other teams draft well, but don't develop well. There's a, you know, a combination of that. It depends on the cycle of, of the organization and where they are in terms of being competitive in that respect. And if you're a general manager, say who has inherited a team and you look at the track record of drafting developing, and it's been poor, do you value your draft picks differently? Like, Oh, I'd rather trade until we can fix what's going on in our drafting development department. You know, those are those kind of situations. So from your perspective of, you know, being in a management position and being, you know, in the trade deadline, 
in those weeks leading up to it and recognizing what you guys have done in the draft and what you've done in development, what are your thoughts on, you know, those types of strategies of valuing draft picks and particular prospects when you're maybe trading them away for, you know, NHL assets immediately? Yeah, so much of it is subjective, Shane, according to exactly where you're at. And we, we've talked about factors, you and I have, about cycles of teams, where they're at, where the win factor is, where the pressure is coming from in order to do these things. And it, I've seen models, you know, a lot of it was generated in the NFL originally, and it was okay, you know, two third round picks are worth the first round pick between 25 and 30. And that's their own scientific information that leads to that. It's it's on based on history on which players have played. But you know, when you look at drafts, you have to look at the strength of the draft itself. And you don't know that. You can argue all you want that this is going to be a great draft coming up in 2023. But we don't know. And we don't know. And we yeah. won't know for five years. We just don't. And you know, and you just don't know. And it's interesting when when I got into this part of it, it's as much the most important thing, Shane, is putting your list together and the merging of your lists. And because if you can get your sense according to your needs and your organization and the sense of who the best players are, and you can put them in order, they're in your order. Everybody's order is slightly different. So you might tell me, you know, you think that's worth a second round pick. And I'd say, we didn't even have that guy in the second. Like, you know, and, and the common thing to say is if you get a player late in, or early in the second round, the most common thing for a manager to say is, well, we had him listed in the first round. Of course you did, because everybody's list isn't exactly the same. And the biggest thing is the merging of the lists. And when I say that, you do categorically, you do Ontario, you do the West, you do Ontario, you do Q. Um, you do North America, um, south of the border. Um, you do your Finland, Sweden. You know, you might merge a couple of countries, put them together. You merge your European list. You merge your North American list. Then you put it all into one. And so how can your valuation of what a second round pick be anything like mine is? <laughs> it's not possible. It's, right. it's physically not possible. And, you know, you can talk to as many people as you want to, but you're going to see a player on different nights. You're going to see him at different times. Um, you know, how does David Posternak get to a late first round? Let's, let's look at a Jacobs Borrell and a Thomas Shabbat, you know, who play for the same junior team and are both taken in the middle of the first round and Zaborl's taken ahead of Shabbat. And you'd say, okay, you were there every night, you watched them. From that point forward, they developed differently. Maybe Ottawa did a better job with Shavant than Boston did with Zaboral. And, you know, it's, but the draft and development part of it, the development can't be underlooked in terms of how important it is on the draft side. It just can't. It's too important. And so the mathematical equations of, of and, and I know teams have done it, they've got to 23 in the draft and they've said, okay, we think we can get an equal player at 34. Well, that's because in their bandwidth, they couldn't decide between 23 and 34. Right. They couldn't delineate exactly who 23 was and who 34 was. So they're correct. They're fine moving down in that case, Shane, because 
they're going to get a player they like equally as much if they have that bandwidth. And that's what it is. And right. picture the, the segments. Okay. One is clear this year. Connor Bedard is clear. Most minds, Adam Fantilli is too. After that, already it might get murky and it might get different between three, four, and five. And so if you have a chance to move up and get your number three, and Morgan Riley is a good example because we took him at five in 2012. We had him at one. Yeah. Well, one one of the interesting is if you look through, say, I don't want to go past the salary cap era because the value of draft picks changed when the salary cap came in. But if you look sure. at just historical data from say 06 to 2015, the probability of the players of the players in totality that played more than 200 games all the way through, like from one all the way to 215. Cause there's always, there's always extra draft picks in there. You look at that probability now that's a league wide probability. So if you look at that, so for example, say the 30th pick in the draft historically would have a 55.08% chance of playing 200 games. That's league wide, but each individual team is slightly different because some teams whether people like it or not, draft better than others and other teams no develop better than others. They're more patient and they may put maybe put more resources in their player development department. Or, you know, there are obviously, you know, teams that just simply draft better consistently over a long period of time. You give credit to like the Washington Capitals, the Anaheim Ducks or LA Kings, you know, Pittsburgh Penguins in the salary cap era all did exceptionally well. Maybe they didn't get always get superstars, but got players to play 200 plus consistency games or more. And their scouting departments. Right. Those teams you, you talked about, consistency they, in their scouting departments. They, their staff knowledge, didn't change much. Knowledge of what they want, um, an understanding of what they want. And how and they value the at the skill sets and the attributes of those players. This is what our organizational right. values. So it makes it that's why I find it easier to track to to almost predict what the LA Kings or the Anaheim Ducks or the Washington Capitals, those teams, it's easier for me to predict who they're going to take at the draft because their history tells me so. And their staff well, hasn't changed. People, well, their, their staff yeah, hasn't changed. Yeah, their staff right. really hasn't changed, so it makes it easy. Right. When staff changes, that those variables change pretty dramatically in right. some cases. The other factor is with your stats, Shane, is that a first-round pick is going to get more opportunities. Right. He's not, you know... Like a six-round pick might not have four organizations pick him up. A first-round pick is going to get a look because of the pedigree. Because at some level, somebody thought he was good. Somebody thought he was good. Yeah. Exactly right. Simple as that. Like somebody thought he was good. He's going to get more looks. And you know, and then you get into the whole, you know, you get into the whole early birth date and that, you know, the advantages yeah. of an early birth date in the January. By the way, I'm a December birth date. And was an undrafted free agent. <laughs> but you, that all worked out for you. It all worked out fine. Late December, I might add. I didn't even get an early December birthday. So um, it is fascinating. No, it really is. It's so important. It's that much more important to have, you know, an incoming group constantly. You need the numbers. You need to push with young players and have entry-level contracts. And, you know, a team that's, that's done an excellent job as a way that I cover a lot is Ottawa. And they've just flat out done a good job. But then they're, yeah, and they're they always get, in the top five of like, right. But then getting players get a to play fortunate. Think about it, Shane, in the Timmy Stutzler draft, they pick third. 
And had they picked first, Lafreniere was pretty clear number one. Yeah. And a lot of people are in love with Quentin Byfield. And they end up getting third because they didn't win the lottery and arguably have the best player in that draft to date. Yeah. Who's getting better by the day. I mean, clearly getting better by the day. And so, you know, when you, when you look at the, sometimes being fortunate, and I used to have this age old argument with the guys in Philly. And I loved our group of scouts in Philadelphia. And Jerry Melnick was the classic Western Canadian scout. Legendary. Yeah. Jerry was great. You know, terrific. But they would all come in and they'd come into training camp and they would have their first set of meetings in training camp. And it was a little perk for them to come into camp and see some of the players they had drafted. And I remember them crowing in consecutive years because they got Ron Hextall and Rick Talkett in consecutive years with the sixth pick. And I said, guys, that's fine. But you've got to explain to me who the first five picks were in each of those two years. Because if you knew that Hexie and Talkett were going to be that good, they'd have both been first-round draft picks. And we used to laugh about that. But the funniest thing, Shane, was we had a two-mile run. And back before conditioning was even a factor. So picture 1983, we've got a two-mile run. And you had to finish the two miles in 12 minutes, which for any hockey player was a challenge. And beforehand, you'd have the scouts walking around. And coming up to you, because they were going to bet on the run. And they'd be saying, ah, how you feeling? How you been running? I said, oh, why don't you guys stick to hockey, okay? You're going to bet on a bunch of knucklehead hockey players in a run. And But it is such a subjective thing in terms of draft and development. And, you know, the amateur scouting, it's not who you are. It's who you're going to be. That's what you've got to predict as an amateur scout. You've got to, you've got to look at a player. At 18, the environment he's in, and what is he going to progress to? How much does he progress between 16 and 18 years old? Um, has there been an increase in his role, in his play? Um, it's just so, so hard, and, and particularly to put a number on how you weight the draft. I mean, you see different philosophies. You see guys that are more than willing to trade a second-round pick right away and you know don't want to move their first. And it seems like lately – a lot of firsts have moved. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I'm curious to see what's going to happen with the trade deadline moving forward in that respect as well. But Dave, thank you very much for coming on once again. Great insight. Uh, it's been another episode of Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio, powered by Instat Hockey and Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student athletes. You can listen to the show as well on SiriusXM app or your favorite podcast network or on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at HP Radio and HockeyProspectRadio.com. Thank you to all our guests, and we will see you at the rink. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. 
Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on and off ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, bantam, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca.